This episode is all about the deep freeze, the second Gaia miracle. A little over a month after part of the Amazon rainforest spontaneously grew back, the northern polar ice cap froze, completely and all at once. I traveled to Norway to meet a scientist studying the phenomenon. Her and her team enthusiastically reached out to me after I put the word out. And what I learned might be the most damning piece of evidence against the perpetrators. Whether that is Heidel Corp or Gaia Prime, I'm not ready to decide. After much debate and talks with legal, we have decided to continue with the following caveat. The contents of this episode do not reflect the views or opinions or beliefs of Nice Guys Media. I, Barry Orson, and my producer, J.D. Marshall, take full responsibility for the contents, opinions, and views of this episode. With that out of the way, thank you for listening, and welcome to the Gaia Miracles. Welcome, Barry, to Norway. This is your first time, yes? Oh, uh, yeah, thank you. Yes, it is. Norway is beautiful. You'll love it. But very cold right now for this time of summer, yes? Yeah, is this uh, your normal summer weather? It is below average. We believe the new ice is affecting the temperature of our summer. It will be colder from now on, but we can talk about it inside. I brought you one of our coats, the best insulation on the market. This is Heidi Kelevig, a Norwegian scientist studying the environmental changes caused by the deep freeze. How was your flight? It was very long. Yes, we're a good deal far from Chicago. Don't worry, the next flight will be very short. We're taking another plane? Heidi is a quiet genius. She knows a great deal about everything and has an insatiable curiosity for how things work. And she's always cheerful. Heidi considers herself a descendant of Nordic Vikings. She looks like a Viking warrior. About six foot one, long, pin-straight yellow hair, sharp cheekbones, and bright blue-gray eyes the color of a melting glacier. She finds a joy and humor in everything she does, and becomes completely animated when schooling me on the environment, and pretty much everything else. Um, please describe yourself and what your research is about. Yes, I am a researcher in the Norwegian Holstein Laboratory in the town of New Alessand, which is north of Norway in the archipelago of Svalbard. I am part of a team studying the effects of the deep freeze on the local environment and extrapolating to predict global long-term effects. There are some fascinating discoveries, things we've never seen before. And as you know, the map of the world has changed. Yeah, I was looking at the satellite images on my way here. It really looks like an ice cap now. Yes, Barry, it does. Like the Earth is wearing a little white hat. Well, I, I know you're not allowed to talk about certain things, but can you give me an overview of the kind of discoveries you've made so far? Well, wow, there's so much. The ice at the poles of the planet affects the global climate. As we have seen in recent years, the melting of the ice was causing sea levels and temperatures to rise, fueling more extreme changes in climate and weather. It is a cycle, one affecting the other, accumulating. It's snowballs out of control. Due to pollution, this cycle has sped up for the worse. 
So how is it different now with all the water frozen? With so much of the Arctic waters frozen, it is, in effect, lowering sea levels and temperatures, cooling the Earth. It has also strengthened ocean currents. Before, when the ice was melting rapidly, the currents were getting weaker. Without the currents, water will not circulate. Without circulation, global climate would plateau. Hot places would get hotter, cold places would get colder. So without the differences in temperature in the water, the climate would change drastically? Oh, it would be catastrophic. The climate would depend heavily on the sun, the Earth's rotation, and humans. So in short, we will be doomed, yes? <laughs> we weren't doing a good job before or now. Here's our plane. Hold on, that's the plane? Oh, it is perfectly safe, I assure you. It makes this trip several times a day. Look, I'm sure it does, but it's just like... Unfortunately, this is now the only way to reach the archipelago of Svalbard. Norway declared it unsafe for commercial airlines. We used to take a boat up there, which was much nicer, but we haven't been able to cut a route through the ice. Right. Okay. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Um, can I use the bathroom first? <laughs> I'm not a great flyer. Heidi's plane was for private deliveries, a metal cylinder with four seats, cargo space in the tail, and unnecessarily large windows. We're flying north from Oslo, across the Arctic Ocean, to the archipelago known as Falbard, a mostly uninhabited island tundra with a handful of settlements, villages, and outposts near the coast. Svalbard is roughly 23,500 square miles, or about half the size of Illinois, but only has a population of about 2,700 people compared to the nearly 12.7 million in Illinois. Look out your window, Barry! Oh, no. Thank you, I'm good. Barry, you must see the ice wall! Outside of my window is the cold, flat, blue water of the Arctic Ocean, meeting the perfectly smooth edge of an enormous wall of ice that stretches in both directions as far as I can see, curving slightly in the distance. It is a cliff edge, nearly 50 feet high from the water's surface, and the top is a completely flat, white disk. The Norwegians coined its name, the Niflheim Glacier, from Norse mythology, a primordial realm of ice and snow and cold. It's, is that the Niflheim Glacier? Yes, Barry. Excellent pronunciation. How big is it? That is one of the most fascinating things we have been studying. The entire glacier is one enormous piece spanning the entire Arctic Circle. The Arctic Circle was just an imaginary line on a map, but now it is a literal circle of ice, a near-perfect circle. We've been measuring with the help of satellite images. It's eroding a bit now, after almost two years. All of the water surrounding the Arctic and parts of many countries, Norway, Sweden, Russia, Canada, most of Greenland, Finland, and Alaska in the States, has frozen together as one giant ice sheet. There is a debate about changing the classification to make the Niflheim Glacier its own continent. I, I can't even picture that. So this whole area here is the Arctic Circle? Yes, all ice now. What are those boats down there next to the wall? Tourists.
My name is Oglia Dmitri Krakow. I was born in a little village close to Tixi called Ebiaka, near the ice waters of the sea in the north. I lived there all my life. My mother and father are buried there. I met my husband, Ilya, at the summer festival of snow, and he is buried there too. Oh, Ilya, God rest his soul, was the most handsome man in all of northern Russia. He cared for me and my daughter. He built us a good home and we were never going hungry. I met Olya while talking with the Minister of Immigration in Canada. He told me that Olya was not only a refugee, but an activist working against the propaganda campaign coming out of Russia, denying any and all accusations. Did your husband die before the deep freeze? Oh yes, many years ago. Everything turned to shit after my poor Ilya died. He died on a fishing boat, hunting whales. It was accident. The government gives us very little when he died. My daughter Katya started working with me, cleaning and cooking for the army camps. It's hard work, but good money. But the men are dogs. But we take food home with us. And how old was your daughter? She was 17, 18 when she married. One day Katya was chased into a room by some assholes and they... <coughs> My Katya was prettiest girl in the whole village. Strong, good, smart. The dogs wanted her, but she was saved by one of the generals. Thank God. Olia would not tell me his name. She said it was best to forget. This man was kind and good to women, but a monster with the men and with war. He marries my Katya, and that is good. She is safe and taken care of. The general is respected and very rich. Then this ice, uh, Odelio, uh, a blanket. She meant the deep freeze. She says it was like God throwing a blanket of ice over the world. All of the army go crazy. They think Mother Russia is under attack. They get ready for war, but with who? God? Ice monsters? The whales? But all of the ships are kaput. They can't move them. They're stuck in the ice. From what we knew of the Russian military before the deep freeze, they had most of their ships and submarines stationed in the northern waters within the Arctic Circle. It was a strategic move because no other country could sneak up on them. The general gets called to Moscow to tell them what is happening, but no one knows. So the general is told to get the ships out in any way possible. So they start. This get the ships out in any way possible order is a highly controversial topic, mostly because the Russian government has gone silent and refuses to give any information other than all is well and that any speculation to the contrary is all lies, despite the piles of testimony from refugees, political opponents, and good old-fashioned espionage. The Russians tried everything, icebreakers, drilling, brute force, good old-fashioned oil and flame, eventually incendiary bombs. They are rumored to have used napalm, but northern Russia, 
was essentially landlocked, or ice-locked in this case. Then, the more insane allegation that Russia used a low-grade and, as one U.S. government official called it, primitive nuclear weapon. Russia tried to nuke the ice open. And how did you know it was a nuclear bomb as opposed to any other bomb? I am Russian. We all know what nuclear bombs are. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. You should laugh. Laughing is the only way to scare the demons. It is an old saying in Russia. You know, my mom used to tell me a similar one from Mexico. Um, if you meet the devil, tell him a joke. The only thing the devil fears is being laughed at. It doesn't translate well. That is good advice. You should listen to your mother. <laughs> like I have a choice. Um, well, what happened after the bomb? It was not far from the shore. They didn't want other countries to find out. But the general, he talks, Katya, she listens, and then I hear. The wind is stronger now in the north. She raises her arms in the air. So the, the, the ash, the cloud, the poison rain... It comes down to our village, to Olya. Jesus. People start getting sick, and some of the old die. And then a woman and her baby die while having him. The village is so sad and so angry. Wait, your village was poisoned in the fallout? Yes, but many villages. But they tell us all to be quiet, take this pill, keep working. They get mad. They blame the general. And then my Katya gets sick. Ah, my Katya. Katya has cancer, just like many of the refugees from northern Russia and their loved ones they left behind and some military personnel that defected. Russia, again, denies all of this. Olya's village was small and severely affected. After some time of rising tensions and worsening illnesses, the villagers and some of the soldiers revolted in a huge riot at the military camp. The general, Katya's husband, was killed in the chaos, and they were coming for Olya and Katya due to their association, so they fled, with the help of military personnel who were still loyal. Vigo, leave my village. I had lived there 67 years. I left a graveyard of my family and my home. But Katya was all that was important. She needed doctor, she needed to be safe. The Kremlin wanted to kill us for ships to fight a war they cannot win. So me and Katya, we go and don't look back. They were aided by a man who served under the general. He agreed to get them passage to the eastern coast near Alaska. I asked her why someone in the military would help them escape Russia. At this point, the military was closing its borders and using excessive force and violence to keep people from leaving, including shooting them. That man... God bless his soul, was the father and husband of the mother and baby that died from the death cloud? He says, no more. I will help you, Olya, and then I will escape too. And did he? I do not know. I pray he did, but... Olya shrugs and crosses herself. They get to the coast, and through an underground network, they contact someone to smuggle them across. A group known as the White Foxes, the ice equivalent to the coyotes in Mexico. The White Foxes have been using ships to cross to America, but with the ice cutting the majority of the route, they started using a combination of trucks, snowmobiles, and dog sleds, and just walking. 
across the ice to Alaska and Canada. We rode in a truck and then on dog sleds in Alaska. It took almost two days avoiding the army. It was cold, but the skies were clear and the ice smooth. We all wore white so the planes and drones could not see us. We get to Alaska and the government, the Americans, they don't let us in. I tell them, please, my daughter is very sick. I tell them of the bombs and they don't believe me or they don't care. They say, you must have papers, go back. The U.S. had tightened its immigration policies and had not developed an adequate system for taking in the higher volume of refugees coming from Russia. The northern border has never been a major focus or concern for America, historically speaking, of course. The foxes, they say, we can't go any further, and they want us to pay them to take us back. But we will never go back. So, they leave us there on the ice. How can they just abandon you? Why didn't Alaska take you in your refugees? To them, the foxes and America, it's just a business. They don't care. Oh, that's, it's just, oh, that's so frustrating. Your country tried to nuke you. Yes, Barry. I was angry too, but it passes like water in a river. Okay, 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 so you're on the ice and you can't get into Alaska and you can't go back. So what do you do? We walk. Walk toward the morning sun with Alaska on the right side. We look for a way onto the land that is not covered in American dogs or are not high on cliffs, and we don't want to get lost in the forest. The forest there goes on and on. Very treacherous. But Katya and me are tough, and she's not too sick yet. The summer is cold, but not deadly, and the very else do it. At night, we sleep behind a rock or in the forest away from the wind with a little fire. We eat little, and we melt snow to drink. How long were you out there? I mean, how long did it take you to find a town or people to help? Four, maybe five days. It's not too bad. <laughs> That's awful. I mean, five days on the ice in the Arctic Circle? But we made it. We are alive, and we are free of the dogs of Russia. We were hungry and cold, and I lost some toes. What? Katya was very sick from the pneumonia, but Canada has excellent doctors. Olia and Katya were found by a park ranger tracking a family of moose. Moose are now Olia's favorite animal. She says that they are the welcome party of freedom. Katya received medical help to treat her pneumonia, then chemo for her cancer. Doc, can you believe it? We escape Mother Russia to get away from the radiation, and now... Ah. Six months later, Katya was cancer-free. They're both doing really well in a small, chilly town in northern Canada that's reminiscent of Olia's village. Canada expanded their immigration program to accommodate more refugees. I asked Olia what she thought of her new home. I don't have my mama, my papa, my Ilya to visit. But my Katya is alive and free. And this land and its people are good. I thought only the Russians liked the ice.
Longyearbyen is the largest settlement on Svalbard, with nearly the entire population of the archipelago living there. It began as a moderate coal mining town, then a strategic military post during both world wars, and now a proper town with an airport, schools, museums, newspapers, a radio station, and tourism, although it has suffered now that the commercial airlines don't fly there. Longyearbyen is on the coast of Spitsbergen. It used to look out across the vast Arctic Ocean. Now it's just a smudge of color on the vast white disk of the Niflheim Glacier. I was spinning in circles. Heidi and I and the town were completely surrounded by a blank whiteness, as far as I could see in any direction. Only a few uncovered slivers of mountain broke the monotony of white. It was terrifying, like being on the edge of the universe or that white room in the Matrix where nothing exists. Heidi, were you here when the deep freeze occurred? No, I wish I had been. I was in Berlin visiting my father. I heard about it on the television. My father has it on constantly. Do you think I can talk to some of the local residents about it? Of course. I was sure you'd want to, so I've arranged for you to meet a friend of mine at our lunch. We have time to eat before our next flight. <sighs> Another one. Of course. Yep! I knew something bizarre was going to happen. It was the animals. The birds, foxes, the polar bears. They were all getting out of the water. This is Heidi's friend, Rona Igbreyer, a resident of Longyearbyen and the owner of its only premier bed and breakfast. There were seals. About a hundred of them. Clumped together back here by the duck, not touching the water. She points out the window, facing a small stretch of rocky beach, a narrow wooden dock, and the empty whiteness beyond it. Is, is that the ocean there? Yeah, used to be. Now it's ice. Is it normal for seals to get on land together? Yeah, but they've never done it here in the tent. They have their own spots out there. And it wasn't just the seals. It was the bears and the walruses, too. The Mary should the curfew, saying we should stay away from the beaches. There were too many seals and bears. He said to just stay inside until the rangers can coax them away. Now, seals can be dangerous too, and it was dark. It was near the end of polar night. And how long does polar night last? Bit half the year. It is not complete darkness. Most of the time, we have twilight here in Svalbard. Gets a little brighter, gets a little darker. Only really close to the pole, it gets completely dark for months. So we stayed inside. I watch the seal sleep on the shore. Then, a big green light brightens up the sky to the north. I grab my coat and I step onto the porch to watch. I thought it was the northern lights putting on a really good show. But it wasn't. It didn't twinkle or move. It was a solid green light and it lit everything here. Then all the seals all at once start to wail and hum. I could feel the vibration from their chorus. The windows were rattling. Snow fell off the trees. And then, they all stopped. Again, all at once. I have never been so terrified of silence. And what about the green light? How long did it last? Not more than a minute or two, and it disappeared too into the silence. But then this sound from very far away at first. It sounded like the ringing of a glaze, but as if there were hundreds of glaces being struck out of sync, almost like 
rain falling on a tin roof. The sound got closer and closer and, and louder until I had to cover my ears it was so loud and causing a great pain in my head. The water was moving, swirling, freezing violently, slamming and, and crushing boats and, and rocks in the docks. The noise paced is getting further away, moving south. It was a long time before my legs stopped shaking so I could stand. What I saw was something so bizarre and impossible. It, it made me laugh. The seals were flopping away on the surface of the water like, like Jesus if he did it on his stomach, but, but it was ice. Clear, blue, and invisible in the dark twilight. Of course, we couldn't tell how far the ice had spread until the sun came back with longer daylight hours, followed by the rest of the world, looking with their satellites and planes and, and drones. But I already knew when I saw that green light. When the seals all sang together, it was another miracle. Like the Amazon. The universe is trying to save us. Save us from what? From destroying ourselves. Are you feeling better about flying? A little. I'm sure I'll get used to it soon. Yes, you will. We have to take the same flights to get back to Oslo. Oh my god. I hadn't even thought of that. I ride these all the time. They deliver food, supplies, equipment, mail, people. The government on the mainland invested in more cargo planes after the freeze. You see, Svalbard was completely isolated in the first few weeks after. Nearly all of the imports came by sheep, but no sheeps can get to Svalbard, and it took some time for Norway to declare it safe to try and reach it. There is a team working on how to build roads between the towns. There weren't many before because of the ice and low usage, but it might be the most effective option now. Until then, it is only planes. So there's no path through for ships? No. Not in all the Arctic Circle. The ice is too thick for the icebreaker ships and industrial drilling. No country has approved anything more extreme. The UN is very strict about it. Though there are the rumors about Russia, it's quite typical, already trying to destroy something beautiful. Welcome to New Elsant. You are very lucky, Barry. Only scientists already on a project are allowed inside. Sometimes government officials, but never reporters. And do I have you to thank for that? Yes, and my boss, Christoph, of course. He signed the paperwork. Officially, you are here to inspect our lab. <laughs> well, I hope I'm not risking this freedom, but why did your boss agree to have me visit? Well, as you can imagine, it can get a bit boring and a bit quiet here. We listen to a lot of radio and podcasts. Christoph and I love your show and your other one. That's right, listeners. We have fans in one of the most remote places on the planet. Shout out to New Elson and Svelbard. Stay warm. These scientists live and work in the hosting lab. It is a small metal and brick building that houses equipment to measure everything from temperature to the position of the stars to the composition of a single drop of water. There are a few other people working at different tables, wearing gloves and goggles. No lab coats, just good sweaters. They look curiously at the newcomer, they don't get many, and greet me warmly. This is one of the things I am allowed to show you. We are publishing it this month. 
Is is this a satellite image? Yes. We don't know what it means, and there's no discernible pattern, but they are not naturally made. It is a bird's eye view of the Niflheim glacier with the North Pole at its center. Scattered throughout the white surface are holes, holes in the ice. No pattern that I could see, but the openings are circular and even in all the same size. It looks like craters on the moon or a strainer sifting powdered sugar. We believe they are made for the wildlife. Many animals in this ecosystem depend on using the surface for shelter, hunting, and mating, which they can do through these openings. And these just appeared. For now, we can only speculate, but it seems they were created at the same time the ice froze. We have several different teams testing and measuring, trying to figure out how they were formed and their purpose, but it's slow work. We lost most of our equipment. Most of their equipment and that of the other research groups float on the water and were completely encased in ice during the freeze. Heidi's team has not been able to secure enough funding to replace it all. I asked about what progress they've made in breaking through the ice. The composition of the water is the same from samples we acquired before the freeze, but then as ice, it is more densely packed, making it hardier, therefore harder to break, and it resists heat change. What does that mean? It means that more energy is required than normal to change the temperature of the ice, more energy to melt or break it. We don't yet know why. It sounds like this ice was meant to be permanent. Yes, I agree. But it insinuates that this freeze was conscious and controlled, and we can't explain what mechanism was used. But yes, permanent as possible, with exception of some cataclysmic event like a meteor or a volcano, or hundreds of years of pollution. Heidi, it seems to me like you're conducting some very important work. Why haven't I heard of it before? Why isn't there more coverage or money for funding? The main problem is the usual one, apathy and desensitization. Humans have a long history of ignoring and denying climate change and the consequences of our polluting the planet. That continues today, much less thanks to the miracles, but it is learned behavior that takes the longest and most work to change. The Norwegian government has spent a good chunk of its budget re-establishing communication and transit routes with their island neighbors. Svalbard was essentially stranded after the freeze. Nearly 90% of their imports came by boat, the rest by plane. Also, in the first few weeks, they spent a great deal of money frantically searching and rescuing anyone stuck out on the ice. Any ship that was in the water at the time of the freeze was frozen in place. Many ships suffered damage by rapid expansion of ice. One of the people lost at sea was Heidi's wife, Anita. Anita was an incredible scientist and a brilliant wife. She was happiest collecting data. It scratched an itch on her mind that she loved. I was in Berlin visiting father, and Anita was here in the lab, working on analyzing ice cores. One sample was contaminated, and despite it being polar night, she and our drill expert went out on a boat to get a new sample. And, um, the search parties from Oslo found the boat a few kilometers north of Svalbard. It was badly damaged and frozen in place. We assume that they tried to get back, or Anita would have known the location of an outpost near where their boat was found. Unfortunately, Anita and Marco were never found. I'm so sorry, Heidi. I know 
what it's like not knowing. Yes. Unfortunately, it is something we share. This is Anita. She loved her braids. Heidi shows me a picture on the wall next to her desk of a beautiful woman with dark blonde braids wrapped around her head, smiling as she holds a baby seal in her hands. Well, Barry, we will get a good rest and then set off tomorrow for our final destination, the North Pole. Great. I am exhausted. (laughs) What time is it? It is 23.37 or 11.37 p.m. your time. What? But the sun, it's still up there. Welcome to Midnight Sun. We should be there within the hour. The weather is on our side today. The next morning, the sun was still almost setting. We set off in these enormous all-terrain vehicles with five-foot tires with chains and spikes. They are a new line of all-terrain vehicle being tested in the harshest place on Earth. Part of the project of figuring out if roads in the Niflheim Glacier can be a viable option. Essentially, they're armored RVs. Some amenities, a mini-fridge, a hot plate, a small sink, a pantry with canned and dehydrated food, blankets, snow gear, and two small cots in the rear. Heidi calls her truck Isjorn. That's Norwegian for ice bear. It took us nearly an entire day to reach the recently established outpost halfway between New Elsund and the North Pole. Here, we rested and restocked and refueled Isjorn, and then we continued north. Normally, temperatures in the Arctic summer average, and this came to a surprise to me too, between 37 and 54 degrees Fahrenheit, sometimes warmer by the coast. This is due to those ocean currents. Warmer water flows in from the equator to melt the ice and warm the Arctic, but because of the Niflheim Glacier, those warm waters do not reach the surface. The temperature does not change. It remains as cold as Arctic winter year-round, averaging negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. I know that we Chicagoans understand cold. Nothing compares to the extreme temperatures of Chicago winter. But out there, outside of the heated cabin of the truck, in the furthermost tip of the planet, a land of ice and snow and sub-zero wind, I redefined the feeling of cold. It felt like my body was just above freezing the entire time, blood slowing in my veins, muscles stiffening, limbs going numb despite the many, many layers and stuffed warming packets. Barry, look out your window now. That's the North Pole. (laughs) What? It's nothing. It's dumb. I I don't know why. I thought for a second there, there would be an actual pole with a sign on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is dumb. But there is something I want to show you. Let's prepare. Wait, we're going out there? Yes, Barry. You are about to walk on the North Pole. Unfortunately, I don't have a recording of my walk of the North Pole. The wind garbles any audio and I have no way to insulate my recorder or microphone. The battery dies and freezes within a minute. We dress. In four layers of shirts and pants, an arctic grade jacket with aerogel insulation, two pairs of gloves, insulated knee-high snow boots, earmuffs, a ski mask, a hat, the jacket hood, goggles for the eyes. We look like yetis or over-encumbered astronauts. I do feel a bit like an astronaut, stepping down the retractable steps of the truck. We have to move slowly in the suit. The outside environment is harsh and inhospitable. It is so bright. The sunlight bouncing off the snow and ice. Without the dark tint of the goggles, it would have blinded me. The void here is white, not black. 
The sun is in the sky and will stay there for a few months before disappearing for the other half of the year. The ice is covered with snow that goes on and on and on, nothing to indicate how far it stretches or where land or civilization is. Some snow drifts off the surface. The wind is a constant howl. Even through my gear, I can hear it. Heidi leads the way to the spot we saw from the window. It is a crater in the ice about 30 feet in diameter, and it slopes down to about 12 feet in depth. A harness rig is already secured to the truck to help us down into it. It is a smooth bowl of ice, and I already know that the opening is a near-perfect circle. The crater walls shield us from a bit of the wind. Heidi points to the center of the crater. There is a hole about six inches in diameter. Heidi points to her ear and then to the hole. She pulls a coin from her pocket and drops it into the darkness. It hits the walls going down and down, making a long, wailing, whistling sound that echoed off the walls of the crater. Heidi explained later in the truck that the whistling sound is created from the coin scraping the sides and cutting through the air tunnel inside the well. It lasted so long because the coin fell for nearly a hundred feet. That's approximately 10 times deeper than it should be. The deep freeze had frozen a column of more than a hundred feet of water below the surface of the crater. But Heidi has one more thing to show me. We climb out of the crater. Our driver reverses Isjorn to a spot outside the crater marked by a small flag I had not noticed before. Heidi opens a few compartments on the back of the truck and releases a valve of boiling water. An instant cloud of steam sizzles and explodes from the water hitting the cold air and ice, and we, the astronauts, are lost in a cloud of steam for a moment. Eventually, the wind blows the cloud away. Heidi points to the surface, which has now been cleaned of its snow, and a chill. In the coldest of places, nearly frozen myself, a chill runs up my spine. Frozen, encased in ice, pure and clean and nearly transparent, is the body of a man, facing away, back arched, arms and legs floating away from his body. He was suspended in the ice, like a photograph taken underwater. His one gloveless blue hand reaches out to an assault rifle, floating in the space beyond his fingertips. The frozen man wears heavy snow gear like mine, but his is a very specific shade of gray with a very familiar logo on the sleeve. Join us next time for part two of the Deep Freeze. You think Gaia Prime was some hero here to save the planet? No, they were not. They had one goal, they had a target, and they had a plan. Helping the planet was a side effect. Their goal was revenge against Hydelcorp. And you know a bunch of people died every time they did one of their little miracles, right? <laughs>